171 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. I'm Valerie Koo, CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses, useful resources, and an awesome, awesome, awesome supportive community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. How are you, Al? Do you know what? I'm so I'm so fine. I'm actually beyond fair to middling because yeah. I, the, that whole how are you, Al thing. So as you know, you and I went to the Squibby conference on Monday and you know that because <laughs> you were there with me. So we, we were there together on the stage talking about cows and orgasms, which seems yeah. to be the main message that people have taken from our actual presentation. Mm. Um, but the number of people that came up to me at that conference and were like, how are you, Al? <laughs> and I was yeah, I was like, well, I'm, you know, fair to middling. No, I'm not. I was actually pretty good. It was such a fun time. I had such a nice it time at the conference. It was great. It was great. And in case you're wondering what in the world we're talking about, it was the conference of the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, which was held in Sydney this week. And it was, it's one of the best conferences around. I really, really do like it. I think it's so well organised. Oh, um, so good. Massive yeah. shout out to Suzanne Gervais, who was yeah. the yeah. driving force behind that with her amazing team. Amazing. Who was up there on the stage, there was Deb Abella, there mm-hmm. was Sue Whiting, there was um, Jody uh, Wells Slowgrove was up there, mm-hmm. and it was really, really like just such a great, um, such a great conference, such a lovely vibe. I mean, that's lovely one thing vibe. I will say about a children's writers conference: the love in the room is so incredibly palpable. Yes. It was just. Uh, it was terrific. And, of course, we did a presentation on how to – what did we do? Remind me again. How to build your profile as an author and sell more books. Yes. Um, so, you know, regular listeners of the podcast will have heard, uh, you know, over the thousand million episodes that we have done will have heard <laughs> uh, the various messages that we that we talked about in that podcast. But, of course, it was all put together in a very neat all-singing, all-dancing package. Yes, it's a really good industry conference to be at as well. And a big shout out to all of our listeners who came to say hello at the uh, yes, at the conference. So, it was so great good. to meet you all. It Fantastic. was great. And I just want to have a special shout out to Renee Mahulka, who um, I worked with uh, last year. I was doing some coaching with her. I think it was last year. And she was working on a middle grade uh, novel at that time. And she came up to tell me with great joy that she has finished it that it is as good as it can be and that she's ready to set, to send it out and submit it. Um, and then she told me how many words it was and we had a little chat about the fact that it was probably still too long, um, but, <laughs> but she's but she's ready to go, which is, um, which is terrific. So hello to Renee. And also another shout-out to the One More Page podcast team who were all there, all singing, all dancing together. And um, I am actually on that podcast this yeah. week talking about – I know, very chatty. Look at me. I'm all over yeah. the place. Talking about uh, epic adventure, writing epic adventure series, how to keep, uh, you know, kids turning the page and also um, something that interests me a great deal, which is, of course, when you've got a lot of action in a story, you you obviously need to do to keep focused on that, with particularly with the kinds of stories that I tell. But there's always space to have a look at some of the grey areas in um in sort of the, the the character's morality and thinking, and that's something that I really went into uh, in the Adaban Cipher because, of course, I have, mm. you know, Gabe who's grown up in a monastery and has a very fixed idea about what, what is good and what is not and what is right and what is wrong, um, you know, from that, from that sort of like growing up like that. Uh, and then, of course, he hits the real world and he hits the real world with, you know, these four girls who have been on their own for a couple of years having to manage and having to, you know, make their way in a world that is not, you know, not easy. Um, and just the the interesting conversations that, that they have in a very kid-friendly way, obviously, about what is right and what is wrong and what, you know, you need to do to survive and, and you know, all of those kinds of things was one of the real joys of writing that story. So mm. if you want to hear me bang on about that, please go and listen to the One More Page podcast this week. Um, it's a terrific kid-lit uh, podcast and I'm on episode 26. 
Mm. And conferences are a great way to network because it's just like networking on steroids because so much happens in the lobby, so much happens over lunch, at oh, coffee breaks, morning tea. Morning tea. Oh, morning you know, tea it's not off. just about the muffins. It's no. also about meeting people and I really recommend going to conferences for that reason. I actually do recommend paying for your ticket and going because I do know some people who who just turn up in the lobby? <laughs> oh, and <laughs> when hang they know waiting for <laughs> when they know a conference is on. <laughs> it's really quite bizarre. Oh, but do you know, <laughs> pay for your ticket because when you pay for your ticket, you get a name tag. Yes. And I am telling you, from my perspective, that the name tags save my life because you know what, Twitter avatars are really small. Mm. And when someone comes up to me at a conference and they recognize me, I think, as everyone said, like, Al, you know, you can never possibly ever cut your hair because Mm -hmm. it's the only thing people recognize about me. But um, if someone comes up to you and is all like, hi, Al, how are you going? The name tag. And I can go, oh, my God, I know you from Twitter or I know you from Mm. Facebook. Get a name tag. Really important. That's right. And it was so great to see people. So I want to give a big shout out to everyone who was there, all of our listeners, in particular also to Victoria and Paula and uh, and Muna, who actually heard about the conference through this podcast and then signed up. Oh, so fantastic. great to see you all. Now, Al, I have a million-dollar question for you. A million dollar question. You haven't yes. done this before, Val. I don't know if I'm ready for this kind of pressure. <laughs> okay. So the million dollar question is um, uh, we have a – something has happened that we thought we had a one in a million chance that that it would occur. It's a once in a million opportunity <laughs> It's a million, I can't, I should have really thought of all of my million references. You should have. But a really exciting thing has happened. Can you guess what it is? Well. Perhaps I've given you quite a I'm assuming we haven't won the lottery because you would probably have shared that with me and we would now be (laughs) sipping champagne in Paris or something. So could it possibly be, Val, that we have reached our magic million download mark? Yes, we have surpassed over a million downloads of episodes. Parades, people, parades. parades. Balloons, cartwheels, (laughs) streamers. Exactly. So big thanks to all our listeners because never in a million years. Never in a million years. Would we have expected to go over a million downloads? A million. That's (laughs) like when you think about that, that actually really – blows my mind a little I'm actually having to have a moment here like a million downloads of people listening to us rabbit on about stuff it's kind of fun really isn't it and you know a huge shout out also to all of the authors all of the amazing authors that we have had on our program over the years because um so I've just had cause to go back through the transcripts of of all of our um I know lucky me like can we just take a moment here to to assess Al, going back through all the transcripts of all of our episodes um, and reading through them all. And, oh, there is so much gold. There is so much fantastic information. Um, People have been so incredibly generous with um, answering my somewhat ridiculous questions at times. And it's really funny because I'll be reading the transcript and I'll ask a question and there'll just be this, I can't believe you just asked me that, Al, kind of response. I'm like, I'm like, I'm really glad I asked you and I don't have to answer it. Um, but, yeah, to the, all the authors, to all of the people who have downloaded those one million, ep- that's one million episodes, thank you so much yeah. for listening to us, Bang On. And I would also like to, at this point, give a huge and massive grateful th- shout-out and thank you to the Australian Writers' Centre team because they are the ones that transcribe all those episodes. They are the ones that sort the audio out. They are the ones that upload it. They are the ones that get it out there with a nice pretty graphic on it. Um, We couldn't do this without them. And I absolutely love them because they keep me on track. They make me sound good. And, you know, I I think we can all give them a huge shout out and a round of applause. And I'm round, I'm applauding, but, you know, there we go, applauding. Um, Thank you so much to the team for helping us to, to bring the podcast to you every week. And, um, yes, 
wow, okay, I feel like I'm at the Oscars. Should I stop now? Do you want to gong me off? Okay, Lady Gaga. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, everyone uh, on the Australian Writers' Centre team are very committed to the podcast and they're awesome. So thank you to Stevie and Nat and Ra and Sarah and Cassie and Dean and Farah and Elma and Alvin and Gilbert and Franny and everyone involved so see, really see how many people it. there are so many people yeah. behind the and scenes and farah and farah and farah sorry i said farah okay yeah yeah sorry <laughs> so okay let's move on we also want to thank the amazing writers who took part in the february <laughs> i'm tongue tied because there's so many ifs february furious fiction <laughs> that's so hard you try saying it Go on. February Furious Fiction. That's hard. February. I can't even say February February Furious Furious Fiction. Fiction. Everyone try and say that fast. I reckon you'll trip over it as well. We received a record number of entries for our competition's first birthday. Over 1,100 stories. 1,100? Yes. Wow. 1,100 stories. That's amazing. Yes. Yes, amazing. Check out the winning story and the shortlisted favourites at furiousfiction.com.au and we're back this week for another round of Furious Fiction March and if you're not familiar with this, on the first Friday of every month we unveil a new set of creative criteria and challenge you to write a story of 500 words or fewer in just 55 hours. So basically you get the clues at 5pm on the Friday, you have 55 hours which makes it midnight on Sunday, so the end of the weekend, uh, to enter. It's free to enter and it's a great way to exercise your writing muscles and the best part is that the winner scores an awesome $500 cash. So this is real money for your furious fiction entries join the fan club so that you can be notified as soon as each round is live so you have to go to furiousfiction.com.au to join the fan club so that you will get the email as soon as it's live and then you can start writing and you might win five hundred dollars as well all right now our competition this week is um you can win one of three copies of the orchardist's daughter a story of freedom, forgiveness, and finding the courage to break free from best-selling author Karen Vigors. Karen returns to remote Tasmania, the setting of her most popular novel, The Lightkeeper's Wife. So 16-year-old Michaela has grown up isolated and homeschooled on an apple orchard until an unexpected event shatters her family. 18 months later, she and older brother Kurt are running a small business in a timber town. Michaela longs to make connections and spend time in her beloved forest, but she's kept a virtual prisoner by Kurt, who leads a secret life of his own. Michaela has to fight to uncover the truth of her past and discover her strength and spirit. So go to writerscentre.com.au in order to enter. Just follow the instructions there. writerscentre.com.au slash win. <laughs> writercenter.com.au slash win to enter the competition all right now al are you ready for the word of the week so i am ready and uh-huh. i would just also like to say that when i happen to mention the word of the week from yeah. the stage during the presentation <laughs> of the um at the squibby conference mm-hmm. people in the audience cheered that's they cheered for you, Val. Thing. There was Yay! cheering. I'm rolling my eyes. They are cheering. So clearly, <laughs> you know, this is bigger than both of us. What can I say? <laughs> All right. So this week's word of the week is adsitious. Adsitious. That's A-D-S-C-I-T-I-T-I-O-U-S. Adsitious. Do you know that word? I do not know that word. It's a good I have one, never used it? that word. I've never seen it. Adsitious. It's real. So it's like a fancy way of saying <laughs> You additional. didn't make it up? Oh, I'm didn't shocked. make it up. <laughs> it's like a fancy way of saying additional. And Macquarie Dictionary defines it as not inherent but deriving from an external source. So if I use it in a sentence, you might say, the adsitious information supplied by the university research was an essential part of the police's investigation. So as you can see, it was from an external source. It's from the university. 
right? Not mm. it's it, it, external to the police. Mm. So that is the correct usage of adsititious. But why would you not just say additional, extra? Yeah, you could, but that has it has an extra nuance when you say adsititious in that you are making it clear that the information is external. Ah, I see. Mm. I see. Because if you just say right. additional, it could be additional from the crime scene department or the coroner's department or the, you know what I mean? Right. Okay. Something Good. associated with the police. Excellent. Yes. There you go. Thanks for um, that, Mel. <laughs> I feel welcome. better. I know. Life is just better when these things happen. All right. So. <laughs> Life is better with the word of the week. <laughs> I reckon it is. Uh, who's our writer in residence this week? Oh, this is so much fun. I'm so excited about this. So my our interview this week is with the fantastic Dervla McTiernan. And Dervla is a crime author, an Australian crime author, who had a smash hit with her first book called The Ruin um, and now has a second book out called The Scholar. And I really enjoyed, I, I, I bought and read uh, both of them actually, um, the, them, and I really love it. She has a character called Cormac Riley. Um, they're set in Ireland. Um, and, of course, she is also Irish. She has a great Irish accent. So when we were setting up the interview, I was she was like, I'm not sure what to say. I said, it doesn't matter. You can just say whatever you want in your accent and people will think you're wonderful. So, yeah. so she kind of went with that. And we uh, we had a fantastic chat about writing crime fiction and a whole bunch of other things. So I hope you guys really enjoy the interview with Dervlet McTiernan. Dervla McTiernan is the internationally best-selling and critically acclaimed author of The Ruin, her crime debut set in Ireland and the first in the Detective Cormac Riley series. The Scholar, the second book in the series, is out now in Australia and New Zealand through HarperCollins and out soon in Ireland, the US, UK and other territories. Welcome to the program, Dervla. Thank you, Alison. It is really cool to be here, particularly because I have listened to your podcast so many times and a lot before I was published. So it's very weird to be on the other side of this now. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so excited that you're here. All right. So your first novel, The Ruin, came out in February 2018 and seemed to become an immediate smash hit. Like it was one of those books that everybody was talking about. Can you tell us how that book came to be published? Um, yes, I can. Um, and first I'll turn my phone off so it doesn't make noises at us. Um, I was, oh gosh, where do I start? I, like everybody else, I suppose I was just writing away, um, mostly at night. I was working during the day and I had young children. So I was writing in the evenings and feeling like, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe someday something might happen in terms of getting closer to publication, but not really having any real expectation that it would. You know, I was on all the websites that everybody else goes on where they say your chances of publication are pretty much zero. So that's where my head was at. But I loved to write. Um, And I entered one evening when I was at my desk and I was a bit bored and frustrated. I entered one of those Twitter pitch competitions. You know, where you pitch your book in 150 characters or something. Mm -hmm. And um, an agent from the States liked my tweet, which basically means that you're invited to submit your query. It's really the same way as cold querying, except you've got a bit more of an intro because you've done this Twitter pitch competition. Anyway, I sent her my 50 pages and I kind of forgot about it. Um, The book really was not ready to submit. Like I was working on it, but it wasn't ready to submit. I just couldn't resist this whole Twitter pitch thing. And it was a bit of a boredom release thing. Anyway, then I, um, I had a bit of a, a bit of a weird wobble in that I was, this is a bit of a long story, Alison, I hope I'm not going to bore you guys. I to love tears, a long but... story. <laughs> I, my husband and myself and the kids, we were heading down south for a, a holiday with friends um, here in Western Australia and I had some medical results to pick up that morning. So I went into the GP at 8am on a Friday, really expecting absolutely nothing major and the GP just said, well, um, Dervla, you have a brain tumor and it's quite large and you need to have surgery and so on and so forth. And, and it all kind of came at me very hard. And wow. then, yes, yeah, so then she um, she wasn't my usual GP. And I think, honestly, looking back, I think she was a bit nervous because it's not, it's not the kind of news it's easy to give. But whatever caused it anyway, she kind of turned to her bookshelf and she took down her physician's desk reference that she flicked through until she found, you know, um, neuro- neurology or whatever and she wrote down the name of three neurosurgeons on a yellow post-it note and handed it to me and said now call these surgeons and whichever surgeon will see you first is the one you need to see 
So that was fine. I kind of took my yellow post-it note and went out to the car and I sat there and I I thought, you know, who do I, like, I, I better make these phone calls now because I don't want to go home because as soon as I make a phone call at home, the kids come running and it's not mm. really the conversation I want to have with them beside me. So I was about to make my first phone call and my phone buzzed in my hand and it was an email from that agent I had submitted the book to saying that she loved the first 50 pages and would I send her the manuscript? So I was like, this is bizarre and surreal and so weird. So I came home to Kenny and I was like, okay, I've good news, I've got bad news. <laughs> That's incredible. I have a brain tumor, but the good news is the agent loved my book. And honestly, I was so much more excited about this fact that this agent had emailed me. And Kenny was like, but Derf with the brain tumor. <laughs> and I, I, was like, I was like, no, no. I was like, Kate, honestly, you had to be there. It was so weird. She must have it wrong. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. The way she gave me the news, we really shouldn't worry about it. Trust me on this. I said, I asked her to email me the, the report from the MRI. I'm going to email that now to Avian, my sister, who, of course, lives in Ireland and is a doctor, but would have been asleep at that time of day because it was middle of the night in Ireland. So I said, look, we'll email it to Ave. Let's go down south anyway. Avian will call us when she wakes up and she'll tell us what this all really means. But in the meantime, the agent liked my book. <laughs> <laughs> that is surreal. And so that was that. And then we went down south and we were um, we were in Clancy's Fish Bar when Ave woke up and called me. And we had our, I remember, I'll never forget, we had our dog with us. I was there holding our retriever on the lead and Kenny was in distracting the kids. And Ave was explaining to me that, yeah, the news wasn't so great. Oh. And, um, and that was that. But I, I, as it turned out, I had three weeks between that day and the day of surgery. And I spent the three weeks sending the book out to reams of literary agents. Basically, I had this list I'd prepared before and I sent it to every agent on the list and um, and that was that really. And then I had the surgery and thankfully all went well and about four weeks after surgery, I got the first email from an agent um, in the States saying, you know, she really liked the manuscript and would I be available for a Skype call, which as you know, you know, usually means they, they kind of want to rep you but they want to make sure you're not crazy first. Yeah. So, um, we had the call and I, I really was, I was in very bad shape at that stage. So I put on about four inches of makeup and kind of propped myself up on the couch for the Skype call. Cause I just, it wasn't like I was going to hide it, but I really didn't want the first conversation with an agent to be, yes, I've just had brain surgery and my next book is going to be fantastic. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, yeah, but it went well and she offered me representation and then, um, and then I, I was, really lucky I got a couple of other offers I did what what you're advised to do you know which is you know um kind of nudge the agents who have your manuscript and haven't responded yet let them know you have an offer and that way I kind of ended up finding my agent who is my agent today who's fabulous and Tara Wynn Curtis Brown and and then the book kind of went out in submission and um it was so bizarre so um I we got the book went out on a Friday and I was really prepared. You know, this is going to take six months minimum because, again, I'd read all the websites that tell you how this works. And the following Tuesday, Tara rang me and said that we had a preemptive offer. And um, and then by the time two weeks were up, we had six offers of publication in Australia, which is just wow. I still, I still shake my head about it. I, I just can't believe it. So that's obviously a point where you start to think, maybe I do actually have something pretty special here, surely. Yeah. Or are you still I, sort of recovering so much from your brain surgery yeah. that you're just like, yeah. okay, whatever. <laughs> exactly. It just doesn't, it, it still made no sense. And I will never, ever forget the feeling because it, it came down to a couple of publishers and I got to go over to, to Sydney and Melbourne and meet publishers and, and talk about, you know, how they would publish the book and to make a decision. And I was sitting there and I, to this day, I don't understand how the offers of publication survived those meetings because I couldn't say a word. I just, I was just sitting there going, okay, so the surgery didn't go well and I'm on a hospital bed on a morphine drip and I'm fantasizing about this because oh. this is bizarre. Oh, no. Like these people that you have such huge respect for and who are so, you know, on a different level and they're interested in your book. And I, it, it just made no sense to me and still makes no sense to me. I just, I'm hoping nobody notices that they've made a huge mistake <laughs> and it all seems going for a bit longer. Oh, so, it's just, so you're suffering imposter syndrome even now, even Big today. Time, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Absolutely. So was The Ruin the first thing you ever wrote? Like what, what had been your, so what, and what year are we talking about? He came out in 2018. Uh, so what year are we in? I signed the contract with HarperCollins in October 2016. Okay. 
and I not to annoy people severely, but I started writing probably seriously um, in 2014 was okay. when I really committed to it. I mean, I've been a reader since I could walk um, and just passionate reader, you know, for my whole life. But writing always felt to me like something for other people. You know, I just it was too big a thing. Um, so it took me a long, long, long time to come for it. I think probably moving to Australia was part of the extra push. And then when the kids were big enough um, that they started to sleep and I got a bit of brain space back, I just said to Ke- you know, I wasn't particularly happy in the job I was doing at the time. I said to Kenny, you know, maybe I'll do an MBA. And I said, oh, why am I even thinking like this? I don't want to do anything but write. So I said, okay, I'm going to give it five years. I'm going to write every night except Thursday, which was wine night. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to uh, write every single night uh, for a couple of hours and the kids are in bed. And if after five years I've gotten nowhere, there's no suggestion that I have any potential as a writer then I'll reassess but in the meantime I'm going to be as committed to it as I would be in any career change you know mm. like if you're going, you know it takes years and it just happened a lot quicker than I had hoped or expected. So your background is actually as a lawyer is that correct? Yes that's okay. right. So was crime fiction a natural fit for you was it just what you started writing or did you try a few different things first and then come to, to crime fiction? Um, I started writing crime fiction first because I, that's what I read um, most mm. of the time. I mean, when I when I was younger, I read fantasy mostly. I grew up reading fantasy. I read fantasy. It was probably my first choice right into my 20s. But at some point, I just found it harder to find fantasy writers that I would fall in love with the same way. Mm. And then I just found that I was buying crime fiction most of the time. Um, so I think that was the main reason. And then partly it was because the story that came to me was Maud's story. And it fit within a crime novel well mm. you know if the structure of it fit that story well so that's what I ended up writing but I didn't set out to write a series it wasn't in my head I'm going to write a crime series it was I'm going to tell Maud's story and then we'll see what happens you know okay well that was a question I was going to get to so we'll just put that up park that for a moment but um so where did the inspiration for Maud's story come from then where did the inspiration for the ruin come from like why for instance did you set it in Ireland rather than say Australia where you were living at the time yeah. I think Ireland because it's the place I know best. I mean, we moved to Galway when I was 13. I went to school there. I went to college there. I worked in Dublin for a few years and then I came back and set up my little legal practice in Galway. It's just a city I know like the back of my hand. And it's a very old, old, old city. So the center of it is really small. You can walk everywhere. And it's a great, you know, in terms of atmosphere, it's a great place for crime novels. So that was probably a natural fit. The story, I think, came to me because of because I'm Irish and because I grew up in Ireland at the same time that Maud grew up in Ireland. And, Mm. you know, I, like, I love, I was super lucky. I had a very happy childhood, but, and I grew up feeling very proud to be Irish. You know, I love my country and very proud of my nationality. And then we discovered what had actually been going on in the country at the same time. Mm. And the experience that so many children had, which was very different from mine. And, you know, we were, all left horrified that this had happened but when when all of the, and I'm talking obviously about um you know child abuse but also child neglect and mm. and what was happening at these institutions that were supposedly caring for children at the time and um and other things that were happening within families as well that were sort of being ignored and brushed under the carpet as well as the religious stuff and then it all started to come out and people just said you know we didn't know we didn't know this was going on we didn't know this was happening and i was just you know, I, I like. I make a bit of a joke out of it, but at the end of the day, when I was a kid and my brothers misbehaved, you know, they'd be told, "Behave yourself, or you'll be sent to the Christian Brothers." You know, it was kind of a, a jokey threat that was held over people's heads. Yeah, and it is funny, but at the end of the day, it was people said that because they knew that these were terrible places for children to be, awful places, and nobody did anything to stop them. So, what I was left feeling was, you know, why? Because the people who did nothing are the people that I know and love. You know, mm. the people that I grew up with and respect and care about, who I know are good people. So I was left with these questions, you know, how is it that a society can kind of close its eyes to these things that are going on and choose not to see them? And and that's a question I think we're all still asking today. Mm. And I, I don't know if you'd agree, Alison, but I, I think, you know, for writers, obviously books have to come from inside us. And it might be a story that's set anywhere, an imaginary world or a real world or a place we know well, a place we're making up. But at the end of the day, the soul of the book is coming from the things you really care about. And that was something that I was left caring very much about, but also not understanding. And I think part of writing the book was trying to understand it better. 
Do you think that the fact that you were in Australia when you started writing the book, that you had that distance, do you think that it gave you, I mean, even though you'd grown up there, even though you had the memories, even though you had experienced a lot of that and, and grown up with, with people, you know, who were in Maud's situation, do you think it was the distance that gave you the opportunity to observe it in a, in a funny yeah, sort of a way? I do, because I think that what you do, there are things that you don't notice about your own country and your own culture until you've spent a long time away from it and you've spent somewhere that's very different, you know. And Australia, in many ways, the culture here is very similar to Ireland, but but there are some stark differences. Obviously, um, the geography and the climate is, is very, very different. And, you know, if you're trying to set, if you're trying to describe somewhere, you want to, you don't want to go on, particularly in a crime novel, you want to look for those telling little details that make somewhere come to life. And I think you can see what those details should be more clearly when you've had distance from somewhere. Mm, that makes sense. Do you think that the experiences of being here and being a part of the Australian writing community, as opposed to sort of perhaps being in the Irish writing community, do you think that that, I guess my question is sort of like, do you think Irish readers would think that your books have a whiff of an Aussie accent at all? Or do you think that... Really interesting question. I don't know. I I actually don't know. I mean, I think I have to, when I'm writing um, one of these books, like I have this little study off the kitchen here and I, you're going to think this is really weird, but um, I usually plug my phone into the Noisley app and I turn on rain. Or, so I have my, my headphones on with rain and then I turn up the air conditioning and I put on a jumper. And I <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Because obviously, yeah, it's the only part that's too, too in me otherwise. I don't know. I, I tell you what I do notice. I find myself thinking a little bit more more recently about an you know Australian stories, a little bit. I find myself noticing things in conversation you know, around me that are particularly Australian or that feel, you know, I just, I feel like it's beginning to happen, mm. but I think it takes a very long time to mm. really feel a country. I don't, I mean, you know, I'm, the Peter Temple books, which were so astonishing, I don't know how he did that. I, to me, they feel very Australian. I don't, I, I think Australians would agree with that. Mm. And yet he was South African. Mm. I, I don't feel ready to do that yet. Um, I don't know if Australianisms are creeping in. I do sometimes use some language that I think might be a little bit Australian. Usually it's a curse word. And then I end up having a debate with my um, with my editor about whether it's an Australianism, an Americanism or an Irishism and which spelling is most appropriate. Um, we always tend to, it always tends to be about a swear word, weirdly enough. Um, but I'm, beyond that, I don't notice it. Maybe I'm just, I can't see it. I'm too close, you know. Okay. Do you have to go, are you having to do regular research in Ireland or are you relying on your lived experience and what you remember? Well, I've been, I've been back a bit for, um, for, you know, promotional things when the books are launched and stuff. Um, and I've got a trip coming up I'm super excited about because I get to do New Ireland, the crime writing festival in Belfast, Ooh, which is fun. supposed to be, yeah, it's supposed to be a really fun one. So I'm looking forward to meeting everybody at the bar for that one. <laughs> And um, I usually stay in Dublin with, when I go to Dublin, I usually stay with my sister, but there's loads going on in her house this time. So for various reasons, I'm not, but I booked an Airbnb in an area where I think I'm going to set a story. So that's going to be really fun from a research point of view. I mean, I feel like I know Ireland well enough that I wouldn't need to go back. But someone said to me the other day, um, someone in my family, you know, and it was a reminder to kind of be aware that the Ireland that I remember it, probably already doesn't exist you know Mm. I've been here for eight years now and Ireland has moved on and I read the Irish newspapers and stuff but it's not the same as living it Mm. so I think it is necessary to go back if I'm going to continue to write books in Ireland it is necessary for me to spend time there with Irish people in Ireland and listen to the conversations and see how things have moved forward in that time you know what a terrible shame that you'll have to go back regularly must be devastated. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm horrified. Now, you said um, earlier when we were talking about inspiration that you didn't necessarily have Cormac Riley in mind as a series detective when you started writing the story. So how do you think that would affect like going forward? I mean, are there important things that you need to consider when you're creating a character that can sustain more than one book? I think so. Um, I, for me, the most important, I mean, I think there are different approaches you can take to this, but for me, the most important, two important things, really. First of all, I wanted, um, as Cormac grew as a character, I wanted him to be someone I liked in the beginning. And that has helped me for the series in that I'm happy to go back and write about him again. Mm. He's not a character that, you know, sometimes if you write somebody really 
that you're really not fond of, it's almost hard to pick them up again. But I mm. do like him as a character, so I'm interested in him, and that's good. But for me also, um, I think it was very important to write more than one character that I cared about and that had depth within the police because the non-police characters will not appear book to book. Obviously, the Mauds and the Ashlings, although there's maybe maybe with Ashling, but um, the, the main non-series characters who are most closely linked to the crime, once that book is over, then you're you're done. Yeah. So they're finished. But the other police characters have loads of potential. And I like the idea of moving a little bit in terms of the point of view. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across Tana French's Dublin Murder Squad books. No. which are oh they're just amazing they're they're really wonderful crime I'm books I'm making they're, note as we speak <laughs> they're really fantastic but she does this she's an absolutely unbelievable writer of character mm. and she switches point of view so so thoroughly and so firmly between the books so she will write the first book from the point of view of one police character and the next book from the point of view of a different police character on the same team and they feel like completely different books because the the, the voice is so different. That's what I think she's so phenomenal at. Mm. The voice changes completely from book to book. So I won't do exactly that, but I do like the idea of being able to shift point of view to some degree and experience more from the point of view of the other character. Because you know the way they say this thing, you need the character art, you need your, you need your character to change over the course of the book. Mm. You can't put people through that many, you know, profound life changes in through a series before it starts to become like Dallas and everybody's been divorced ten times and has had six heart attacks and you know whatever else. So I <laughs> and it was think, all a dream. <laughs> it was all a dream, yeah. So I think you need to, if you want to, kind of hit the book at a profound moment in a character's life, you might need to use a different character. Okay. So for me, sense. I like I like spreading it out a little bit. Okay, so. So the ruin, when it took off the way it did, where were you at as far as, you know, working on your second novel, which of course is called The Scholar. It's out now. I've read it. It's great. Um, were you working on that second novel when The Ruin came out or had you already finished it or where were, where were you up to with it? I had finished it, um, not editing, but I had handed it in. So because I signed the contract with HarperCollins in October 2016, and the, you know we needed time to edit the room, and they wanted to bring it out at the right time. So it didn't come out until February 2018. So I had a year and a half. Now I did, you know, obviously there was a lot of editing on the room during that time, but in between the edits, I was writing The Scholar. So that by the time I came to the book coming out, the scholar was handed in and that just took so much pressure off. I was going to say, I bet you were happy with that, were you? Oh yeah. Cause I'd heard so much about the second book thing and, and really I would have been particularly after the room went so well, can you, I sitting down at a blank page. Oh, scary, scary. So, so had, was the fact that the scholar is also Cormac Riley, was that your decision? Was it like, I'm going to write another book from this character's perspective in this world? Or was that something that you and the publisher decided together, um, you know, as part of your two book contract, your second book is going to be another book in this series, as opposed to something totally different? I'm trying to remember exactly how the conversation happened now. It's hard to, it's hard to remember. I think it was either with the agents or it was with the editor. At a certain point, someone said, I think this would be very good as a series. And I said, okay you know um it was <laughs> well. definitely not yeah i'm like fine if you want me to sign a contract i'll sign it for anything i i was just really happy that it was happening and i had so many stories it was never a question of oh i'm not i'm going to struggle to think of what i could write for a series it's you know i i feel like i can go lots of different directions so i was ha- more than happy to write a series and i'm happy that that's what i'm doing now you know um but it wasn't my original plan when i set out to write the ruin okay so while the ruin when the ruin was coming out etc had you started have you, you had you sort of begun writing a, another book or like was there writing that had to be done around the promotion etc of yes, of that yeah. first book yeah absolutely i mean last year was last year was a very tricky year a very Mm. challenging year I was still working in my day job and the ruin was coming out and I was doing a fair amount of travel for festivals I was also editing um the scholar and I was trying to write the third book because my deadline my original deadline for the third book was last November so um that was really really tricky um particularly because my day job just you know seems to get a lot busier in that time um so juggling all of that and the kids was just really really challenging um how did you do it how did you make it work 
Uh, it was a little bit, well, I had a lot of support. My husband's really supportive and he certainly carried his fair share of the childcare and the housework and all of that sort of stuff, which mm-hmm. is brilliant. Yeah, I know it's great when that happens. Um, I was very, very organized and I wanted to do it more than anything else. I think those are the two things. I, I really love to write. And when it gets to seven o'clock and the kids are in bed or 7.30 and I make my cup of tea and I sit down at the computer, that's the time for me. Okay, so that's um, your routine. Are you still writing yeah. every night except Thursdays, which is wine night? <laughs> Just out of interest? Well, I, get, I stopped my day job last October, so I'm writing full time now. And uh, the aim of that was to try to get some of the evenings back. Yeah. Um, Thursday wine night has survived. Which is great. Um, it's still there, even though I still have a few more evenings. I thought when I gave up my day job that I would have all of my evenings free. That is not even close to happening. And mm. I think I was completely deluded about how many hours you get out of the day with having the kids at school. Mm. So it's very short, you know, five hours tops. And yeah. there's always, I always said, you know, I'm not letting housework creep into those hours. I'm not letting, you know, household management stuff creep in. But it does. Of course it does. You know, the car has to go there. Or you have to be here for collecting x y and z or you know whatever the small stuff that creeps into your day um so i probably don't i definitely don't get a full five hours and then promotion stuff you know takes up time and i've just found answering emails is suddenly an issue um so it's just i think at the end of the day as long as you always keep the heart for the writing and just love the writing part and i know it isn't always like that there are days where you have to hit your word count if you're going to hit your deadline and you're not feeling it but if you are doing it ultimately because you love it, then I think you'll always, you'll always find a way. Do you, when you sit down with your, you know, technical five hours, do you aim for a word count on a daily basis or are you just writing to get as much done as you can? Um, I do. I always have a, <laughs> I do always have a word count. I guess it's the old lawyer head coming out. I have a, usually I have a spreadsheet mm. and I have a target for every day and planned out what's happening on that day and adjusted target based on how many hours I have. I'm completely pathetic about it, but I throw it all out the window regularly. Right. I don't hold myself to it at all. And do you do um, that when you plan your books as well? Do you spreadsheet plan those and then throw them out the window or do you plan them from scratch and stick to it? <laughs> no, I, I throw it out the window. I do I do sort of outlines. I usually write free write a lot about a character first. Then I would probably write between 20 and 30,000 words around and then I'll do a full outline and go back. But I, I throw out the outlines regularly. And I've found that by the time, like I'm just finished the third one now, and I've found that as I've moved along, um, I am feeling it more, more. It's more of it's about instinct, knowing that when, knowing when I'm forcing a story versus making, letting it grow organically. And, you know, you're just losing it because you're pushing to try to fit it within a box that it just doesn't want to fit in. Um, So I think outlines are fantastic because you need to know you're going to end up somewhere, Mm. but you also need to be open to feeling it where it's like, I don't, you know, I'm not feeling that this, I'm going to, that this story is growing the way it needs to grow. So I need to look at this outline again and see what's gone wrong. And you said you've just finished writing the third one, obviously. Uh, do you now just like jump straight back into a, a new book or how does, you know, what happens now? I mean, obviously you've got, you know, promotion to do and that takes up yeah. time, particularly with books in different territories. I'd imagine yeah. you're juggling quite the calendar, really. It does. It does get a bit messy because you finish one and then the next one starts. So it's you're never completely off the promotional side of things. Yeah. Uh, which is hard to keep your head in the new book if you're kind of talking two books back in a different territory. You know. Mm. Um. But but it's fine. I mean, it's a real whinge to be complaining about that. Yes. <laughs> We're not complaining. We're just discussing the realities of it so that our our listeners can go. Yes. When it happens to me, I'm going to know how to do that. That's what it's yes, all about. Exactly. That is what it's all about. Um, all right. Yeah, it, it gets a bit tricky with that, but it's it's all it's all fine. And um, from now, I won't it won't jump straight into the next book because it, I've I like to give it time to kind of germinate in my head. So I'll probably write something else. I'll write a short or something, and then I will while I'm writing that, I'll be thinking about the next book. So then when I finish, I'll be ready to. I wait till after I do the structural edit on the third before I start writing the fourth. That's my plan at the moment. So are you technically going to be on a book a year? sort of role for the foreseeable future is that the plan is that plan at the moment yeah wow that's big 
<laughs> it is. Get that it's spreadsheet life. out, Dervla. You're going to need yeah. it. <laughs> All right. So we'll just finish up today um, with our, you know, infamous three top tips for writers, which, of course, I know you're totally prepared for because you've listened totally, to the podcast. Totally, totally prepared for it. Yeah. Well, I should have been, but, you know, um, obviously my spreadsheet let me down on this one. Um, <laughs> I think my first one is the most important one. And I think that is there's only there's only one reason to write. And that is because you love it. You just have to love it. And I remember um, before I was published, just before it all happened, I was down in at the Margaret River Writers Festival. And Kenny came down to meet me on Saturday night. And I just had the best weekend. I was writing, I was hanging out with other readers and writers. I was just having a blast. And I said to him, you know, it doesn't really matter if I'm ever published. If I get to write and do this kind of thing every now and again, that's enough. And I meant every word of it. Like, if you love it, then it's all worthwhile. If you don't love it, you're not going to love it after you're published either. So what's mm. the point? No. Mm. Um, the next thing is um, don't believe too much the whole messy first draft thing I think <laughs> I think it's true that you should feel free to have a very messy first draft but I think you can make it really hard for yourself if you don't pay if it's completely just like stream of consciousness stuff you know mm. I think at the end of the day you are writing a novel or non-fiction if that's what you're writing and just have some some structure to it I think is helpful and that's not for everybody but that's my my approach anyway yeah and my last tip is a very practical one a fantastic book that I found really helpful before you're sending out to agents is a book called self-editing for fiction writers hmm. I don't know if you've come across that one I don't believe I have who's it's just by oh gosh I can't remember I'll, I'll, do... I'll look it up and then we can put a link in the show notes for it that would be great I can't remember the name but I said that fiction writers it's, it's a short book get a little paperback I think I had to order it online um, but it is fantastic for um, the kinds of mistakes first time writers often have in their manuscripts when they get to agents and editors first mm. it can really help you with things like point of view and um, um, you know beats and just attributions just the simple things that actually really make a huge difference to how your writing feels to, to a reader um, and it just can lift you up another level I think so it's a really useful book and I recommend it fantastic well thank you very much those were excellent tips you've obviously Yay! been thinking about those for days <laughs> days, days all right Dervla well thank you very much for your time today best of luck with the scholar out now you can find out more about Dervla at her website uh, which is, Dervler is going to tell us right now. DervlerMacTiernan.com. Okay, and we, I'll put the link for that in the show notes so that everybody can um, can find it easily. And, um, yes, we very much look forward to seeing how, you know, Cormac Riley takes over the world as in book two. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alison. It's lovely to talk to you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murdercourse. Awesome, Dervla McTiernan. I mean, oh my goodness, what a start she had with the the email from the agent and the diagnosis of the brain tumour all on the same day. I mean, how does one cope with such a thing? I know. And I like I was just um like so obviously there was a lot of I didn't I didn't really read a lot of the media around the release of the first book. And so obviously I didn't do my research properly because and I even said that because when she when she started telling me the story in the in the interview, I was like, what? <laughs> what? She goes, oh, didn't you know about that? Uh, no, I didn't know about that. So that just goes to show you. But, I, you know, I just feel like that makes for a much more authentic and interesting interview, don't you, when you're oh, kind of making it up as you go along? Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> 
Go Al. Go Al, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Oh, all right. So what are you doing in the coming week, Al? Well, I'm doing lots Before of writing, Valerie. I'm doing yes. lots and lots of writing. Yes. You and that's me both. Much, yes, and that's as much as I can say right now, but I'm doing <laughs> lots and lots of writing. Um, what about you? What will you be doing? Well, exactly that. You and I are writing a book together, so <laughs> we can tell people that. Are we allowed uh, to well, we're, more will be revealed soon. We probably yeah. already revealed it. I've, okay, we, I've lost track. But you and I are writing a book together, so we are in the depths of writing. Um, it's not hot romance, just so we're clear to It everyone. could be. Like we could turn it into hot romance Maybe. if you want us to. I know, Maybe. fun times. But no, we're not doing that. No hot romance. Yes, but hopefully it's a book that uh, most listeners are going to enjoy and find useful and yep. like yes yeah. uh but that's but we're still in the writing stage and uh we will reveal more soon so yes doing a lot of writing and i'm gonna play pick up put down you know when i play pick up put down yeah, i do know yeah yeah oh it's like my whole house needs pick up put down i'm just looking around and it's <laughs> in case you're not familiar it's where i pick something up and not allowed to put it down until it goes into its correct spot mm. and it's strangely effective and then I yes. reward myself with, you know. Manoffee pie. Yeah, well, it's that's a bit too big a reward for pick up, put down. That's more like oh. when you finish a manuscript oh, for sure, okay. all okay. the manoffee pie. So this is probably going to be um, the lemon cake from Sloppy Teas in um, Colero. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. It's very specific, right? Yes, I've already not hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 it's not sponsored at all. I've already dispatched my partner there in anticipation that I'm going to be playing pick up, put down. So by the time he returns, I will have you know earned my reward. And what happens if he goes and buys said lemon cake? Yeah, and then returns to discover that you've decided that it's all too hard and you're lying on the couch with a magazine. Do you just get to eat the cake anyway? Well. The cake just sits there until I try and motivate myself to actually do it. If right. I don't motivate myself to do it, I have another trick and it's you can have half the cake now <laughs> even though you've done nothing. <laughs> it's like, you know, instant gratification. Oh, it's a complex life at your house, isn't it? Like you really? <laughs> half the cake now and that means you're too guilty that you have to then play pick up, put down. And then when you finished pick up, put down, then you can have the other half of the cake. Okay, I'd probably just eat the cake and read the magazine, but whatever, whatever floats your boat, Val. <laughs> All right, so uh, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, connect with both of, both of us on Facebook in the listener community. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. And, of course, you'll find the show notes to everything we've talked about at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>